We have been studying 1 Samuel. And uh, last week, we introduced you to King Saul, the first king of Israel. And if we were to graph the career of King Saul, it would look like this. He goes from obscurity to king overnight, but then when we reach today's section, it is a steady, dramatic downfall all the way to the part where at the end of First Samuel, Saul commits suicide. So let me, let me quickly kind of give you a, the context here of, of where we are with King Saul. First of all, chapter 9, I call it the appointment. Saul is just a young man, and he needs to run into the prophet Samuel, so God arranges an appointment. Uh, Saul's father loses some donkeys. And he sends Saul to find the donkeys, and he's out for several days looking for these donkeys. He runs into Samuel. That's the appointment. Samuel is the prophet. Chapter nine is the, or chapter ten a is the anointing. Samuel privately anoints Saul as king. Second part of the, the chapter, chapter ten, is the announcement. All of Israel gathers. And there's the public announcement that this is the new king. They do it by, uh, by casting lots. It goes to the tribe of Benjamin, then to the family of, of Saul, then to Saul himself. Um, Saul is very humble at this point. He's hiding in the baggage. Uh, people have traveled from all over. He's hiding in the baggage, and they pull him out, and they see he's a, a head taller than everybody. He's stunningly handsome. And they say, long live the king. Chapter 11, the affirmation. Here, God allows Saul to win his first battle. So everybody sees that God has his hand on Saul. Then chapter 12, the address. Samuel addresses Israel. And basically he says, you've sinned greatly by asking for a king. But now if you will obey God, God will be your God, and um, we're off to a great start. Here's your king. So that's that's where we left off last week. Now, we framed all that by asking the question, was Saul saved or not? Um, Now, if all you were to read were chapter 9 through 12, you would go, looks saved to me. He is off to a great start. But if you read the rest of the story... Um, I think it's pretty clear that he wasn't saved, even though the Holy Spirit came upon him, changed his heart. I don't think that's talking about regeneration. I think it's talking about empowering, God empowering him to be king. But now we're going to see the rest of the story. So let me touch upon chapter 13. Uh, We call this the rebellion. Saul is going to go to war again against the Philistines. And the Philistines are mounting a big assault against the Israelites. And Samuel has told Saul, wait here for seven days and I will offer up a sacrifice before the Lord. That's what a prophet did. And then you go to war. Day seven appears. 
no Samuel. The day is, is getting longer and longer and longer. Saul gets nervous and he says, bring the animal over here. And he, the king, enters into the office of priest and offers the sacrifice himself. Right then, Samuel shows up and says, it's over. God is rejecting you. And then Samuel walks away. Now, we don't quite know what that means, but we're going to see further what that means. Then in chapter 14, we see this rash vow that Saul makes. What's, what's this all about? Well, the war begins with the Philistines. The Israelites are losing. And Saul's son, Jonathan, who is a hero, he and his armor bearer sneak through a crevice in a rock and they, uh, they show up in the middle of about 20 Philistine soldiers. And Jonathan starts swinging his sword, knocking out the, uh, the Philistines, and the armor bearer goes behind and kills them all and uh, kills about 20 Philistines. There's a panic in the Philistine camp and they start running and Israel wins the war. But right in the middle of all this, Saul makes this strange vow or pronouncement. He says, anybody who eats any food must be put to death. Which is strange because, I mean, there's a time to fast, but in the middle of a war where you need energy, he makes this strange, just random vow that he binds everybody with. Now, his son Jonathan had not heard about this. He's walking through the forest, starving, and he sees some bees around a honeycomb, takes his staff, dips it in the honey, tastes the honey, his eyes brighten, and then they go, oh, your dad just said anybody who eats anything is going to be put to death. So all of Israel gathers after the war, and... Uh, Saul can tell something's wrong, so they cast lots, and it falls to this group of people, down to this group of people, down, to, and they find out that Jonathan has done something wrong. And Saul says, what'd you do? He goes, I tasted some honey. I got to die now? And Saul goes, yeah, you got to die. And he's ready to kill his own son. So you should be reading this going, there's something's really wrong with Saul here. And the people, the, the rest of the uh, the Israeli army says, no, you're not going to kill Jonathan. This is crazy. So they prevent Saul from killing Jonathan. So that's the rashness that we see. Now, verse or chapter 15, the rejection. This is God's formal rejection of Saul. So we're going to cover the entire chapter. I've broken it into three sections. We'll call it the wrath, the rebellion, and the repentance. Now it sounds like they all begin with the same letter, but wrath is actually a W. But if we go phonetically, we got the wrath, the rebellion, and the repentance. Okay, so let's take a look at the wrath. Now I'm talking about the wrath of God here. God is going to use Israel to visit his wrath upon the Amalekites. So here we go. Verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. 
Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. So right there, when Moses was leading the people out of Egypt and they were going by the promised land, the Amalekites attacked the back end of uh, the, the huge uh, crowd of Israel, the weak people, uh, the, the crippled people, they knocked them off on the way into the promised land. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them and telling them 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, okay, so now the Kenites are another group of people that seem to be living intermixed with the Amalekites. Right? Saul said to the uh, Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. All right? Now, um, especially in recent days, passages like this have been raised as very concerning to the Christian faith. All right? Um, atheists raise passages like this. That's genocide. And even many evangelical Christians are very bothered by a passage like this, and they've come up with ways to deny uh, whether this really happened or not. Now, um, I'm not claiming that I have it all figured out here, but let me just raise four points that might help us process why God would have Israel destroy an entire people, men, women, children, infants, and the animals. Point number one to consider is the principle of God's sovereignty and the principle of God being judge. If in principle... You as a Bible believer don't have a problem with the flood, that the world was so evil and God flooded the entire living world. Or, that's looking back, if you don't have a problem in principle with the day of the Lord, which is a future day when God will return to rescue his people and destroy the rest. Or, if in principle you don't have a problem with hell, where God will judge the world, and those who've rejected him will spend eternity in hell. If you don't have a problem with any of, of these judgments in 
principle, why should we have a problem with a specific act of judgment? In other words, it's, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If God, the giver of life, and who is also the determiner of when each person will die, if he determines that on one day an entire nation will die, we shouldn't have a problem with that in principle. But let me connect some, some dots in a bigger picture. It seems like more recently, passages like this have created more of an angst amongst people, especially the evangelical church. Um, might it be that passages like this are disturbing because fewer and fewer and fewer people really believe that there is a judgment day? Fewer and fewer people really believe there is a hell? You know, I, I, I keep mentioning this, but I do think 2010, the year when Rob Bell's book came out, where he said hell will be emptied, um, I think that was a monumental pivoting point in America. Not because he's so influential, but because so many people embraced that book, not because they've studied the issues in depth, but because it presented a God that they wanted to hear about. A God who wouldn't judge people eternally. So if we've gotten rid of hell... And, of course, we've gotten rid of the flood. Right? That was a myth. Come on, you don't really believe that giraffes and elephants were on a boat. Ken Ham. Um, so that was a myth. So we've gotten rid of hell, judgment day, and the flooding of the world. What are we left with? We're left with today's passage that's troubling. So I would say if you're deeply troubled by it, now, I, I think any time we, we hear about the death of uh, uh, you know, this many people, we shouldn't take it lightly. But are you concerned because you've given up on God being the judge? All right, so in principle, there's the principle issue. Then there's the justice issue. God is perfectly just. Right? So we have to start with that premise that God is perfectly just. Therefore, when we read a passage like this, we don't get to judge him. We have to let him inform us of what justice is. Remember when uh, God told Abraham he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 righteous people? What about 40? What about 30? What about 10? And God says, yeah, I, I would spare them if there were that many righteous people. And he goes on to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. The, the assumption is the judge of the earth will do righteously. So rather than cutting this out of your Bible, you have to say, maybe I need to understand something about the justice of God. Now, isn't it interesting that he spares the Kenites? Fair warning, Kenites, you should leave, right? God is just. Let me show you something interesting. <clears throat> God tells Abraham in Genesis 15, 
I'm going to give you this land. You're going to multiply into a huge nation, and you're going to come and take this land. But not now. You're going to be slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Then you're going to come back and wipe out the people of the land. Why 400 years? Now, there's many things God is doing in that 400 years, but here's one of the reasons it's going to take 400 years. God says, For the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What he's saying is, you're going to come back and wipe out these people. Oh, by the way, I'm giving the Amorites more time. Now, in that time, they could repent, but in his perfect foreknowledge, he knows they won't, and he's letting them fill up their cup of iniquity before the just moment comes for them to be destroyed. Now, this is a different people than the Amalekites, but the principle is the same. God exercises his justice perfectly and in perfect timing. Right? Let me give you a third one. Children. Yeah, but he tells them to kill the children. That's tough. Right? But let me say this. Depending on your theology of children and salvation, I believe all the children went to heaven. Right? I, I, and without, yeah, we could spend like a month on this. But I do believe there is an age of accountability. And before that age, the children... Go to heaven. Okay. But then, here's the fourth one. I think some non-Christians and some Christians get nervous because they go, wait a minute. If you're okay with this and Christians are okay with this, might that not give justification for Christians to take up arms and commit genocide? Crusades? Well, all I would say is this. Just even the most simple reading of the Bible makes it clear that the Old Testament dispensation and the New Testament dispensation, that's just a big word that means time period, right? There's a difference. Back then, God's people were a nation with borders, with armies, They defended. God used them as a tool of his wrath, and sometimes he brought other nations against his own people as a tool of his punishment and wrath. Newsflash, since Christ has come, God's people are not a nation with borders and armies. So any idea that says Christians should form an army and wipe out uh, whole nations no, we're not, a, we're not a, a national people. We are people amongst nations. So, so this verse cannot be used to justify any kind of Christian armies slaughtering peoples. All right? Now, I'm not saying that this is easy, um, but I am saying I think you need to factor some of these things in and don't be so quick to dismiss it and let God inform you of who he is and what his justice is. Don't you judge him. Let him judge you. All right? So that's, that's point number one. 
Let's move on to rebellion and presumption. Okay? But Saul and the people spared Agag, that's the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. I mean, that's good eating. Why, why just kill it all? Right? And we can mock the king. He can be, we can parade him around as our trophy. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Oh, yeah. We, the, see that three-eyeballed lamb over there and that three-legged oxen? Go ahead and kill that. But the, the, good, the stuff we can eat, keep that. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king. Now, the word regret appears three times in this chapter. And, and um, two times it says that God regretted making Saul king. One time it says, God is not a man that he should regret. So we'll, we'll dwell on that for, for a minute. But he regrets that he's made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel And behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. So where's where's Saul? Oh, he went to Mount Carmel. He's setting up a monument to himself. Whoa, what happened to, to, to humble Saul hiding in the baggage? Isn't it interesting that it wasn't really Saul who won the war. It was his son, Jonathan. It was ultimately God who provided a miraculous victory. Yet Saul, he's, he's starting to feel pretty good, and he's setting up a monument to himself in his honor. Right? And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Ah, good to see you, Samuel. I've obeyed God. Right? And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep bah, in my ears and this lowing of the oxen? That I hear. Oh, Samuel, great to great to see you. I've obeyed God fully. The question is not where's the beef, but why is there beef? Right? Why you were supposed to kill all the animals, and you didn't do it. Now, be careful here. Make sure you understand what's going on. On the surface, it could appear that God is being unreasonably perfectionistic. And he's just looking to catch Saul. Right? One slip up, boom, you're gone. One strike and you're out. In fact, let's compare Saul's sin here to David's sin. David commits adultery with Bathsheba and kills by, by putting her husband on the front lines, kills Uriah. So David kills a guy and retains the kingdom. Saul doesn't kill a guy, and he's going to lose the kingdom. Why is God being so nitpicky with Saul? It's one guy and some sheep. Here's the key. 
Back in chapter 13, Samuel says this, But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. You're out because of your heart. David's in because of his heart. Saul, your heart is an unsaved heart. David's heart was saved. He loved God. He desired to obey God, yet he stumbled and he stumbled badly. While far from perfection, his regenerated heart was in the right direction. Because he wasn't saved, Saul's heart didn't love God, didn't desire to obey him, but it was a rebellious heart. And while close to perfection, at least in killing the the soldiers, he missed one guy, right? His heart wasn't in the right direction. Now, understand this. Even a rebellious, unsaved heart can obey enough to, one, pacify God, at least think you're pacifying God. You know, there are, there are millions of people in churches who are not saved, and they live morally upright lives, and they think they're getting God off their back. Okay? I live, a, I live clean enough to get him off my back. Secondly, to pacify themselves, Saul deceived himself into thinking he was obeying God. Hey, Samuel, I've, I've obeyed God. Right? And then thirdly, to pacify others. He looked good. So the, the human heart, the unsaved human heart, can obey to the point where it thinks God's happy. I've pacified my own heart. I'm happy, and other people at church look at me, and I'm, I'm, I'm fooling them, okay? And I don't know that the unsaved person even purposely thinks this through. It's just I'm pacifying God, I'm pacifying myself, and I'm looking good before others. But what does God think of Saul's heart? Let me skip ahead to, this is the, the classic, the classic verses in First uh, Samuel, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now, what's Saul's sin? For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul's sins were rebellion and presumption. Okay? Rebellion is this. I don't really have any love for God, but I will pacify him with heartless obedience. God sees that as rebellion. I don't really want to, but I will. Don't think you're you're pleasing God. God sees that as rebellion. Presumption. What's presumption? Presuming that God is actually pleased 
with our half-hearted effort. So, if you, if you read this chapter and you go, I wonder what, what's the sin, what's the problem? God tells us rebellion and presumption in Saul's heart. So, Saul's imperfect, heartless, presumptive obedience was just the tip of the iceberg of the depths of depravity of his heart. And the rest of the book, we see it leads to murder and demon oppression and witchcraft. So at this point, God sees beyond the simple surface action to the evil heart beneath the surface of the water. So question would be, when God looks at your heart, what does he see? No, no, not I go to church, I tithe, I do that. No, the heart, what does he see? Not the surface action. So now, Saul, what do you have to say for yourself? Saul said, they, talking about the people, have brought them, the, the animals, from the Amalekites for the people. The, they, the people, spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice. Oh, they're going to do it to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Remember the, there was the character, I think it was on Saturday Night Live, the liar? Yeah. Yeah, we spared the animals for, uh, to sacrifice to God. Yeah, that's what, what they were doing. And notice, he takes no responsibility. This is called blame shifting. I didn't do it. They did it. Remember when Aaron, the the, uh, brother of Moses, makes a golden calf? And Moses says, what are you doing? The people did it. Blame shifting. Another sign of an unsaved heart is an inability to take responsibility. An inability to repent. It's not my fault. We men are good at this because we learned it from our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Adam. Adam, what'd you do? It was the woman you gave me. She made me eat that apple. It's not my fault. And you made her. Are you a blame shifter? Are you a uh, professional victim? Well, what do you expect? I mean, I'm a victim of this, a victim of that. It's everybody else's fault. So maybe here's another question. When's the last time you actually confessed to your spouse? I was wrong. I am sorry. Will you forgive me? Or to your kids. I was wrong. You know, I've, I've heard some spouses tell me that their spouse, had, they've never heard them admit they were wrong. When's the last time you wept over your sin? Not over the consequences, but before the Lord. Now, compare, compare Saul, blaming others, to, for example, the thief on the cross, the two thieves on the cross. 
they're both cursing Jesus, and then one of them gets saved. And what's the first thing he says? Tells the other guy, be quiet. We're getting what we deserve. He takes ownership for his sin. The Pharisee and the tax collector who go into the temple. Pharisee, I thank God I'm not like other people. I tithe and I do this and I do that and I'm so wonderful. And the tax collector says, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm a sinner. I mentioned David. David commits adultery and has Uriah killed. So then Nathan, a prophet, so here we have Samuel, a prophet. Nathan, a prophet, comes to David. And to have David understand what he did, he tells him a little parable, a little story. He says, there was a, a, a rich guy in your kingdom, David, had like thousands of sheep. But living next door to him was a guy who just owned one little sheep. It was, was their pet. And the sheep sat at the table with them and drank from their cup, which is disgusting. Um, it was a pet. And the, the rich guy was going to have a feast. And you know what he did? He stole the poor man's sheep and barbecued it. And David gets furious. He says, that man deserves to die. And Nathan says, you're the man. And David says, I've sinned. Saul says, they sinned. I didn't do it. Let's go on. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. You know, sometimes when, I I know that we as Christians are to be compassionate and we're to hear one another out and we're to listen to the pain, but when somebody's the consummate victim all the time and they're never responsible, there's a time to say, stop. You need to realize what you're doing. You're blame shifting. You're not taking responsibility for your sin. So Samuel says, stop. I'll tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes and you are not the head of the tribes of, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord, and and by the way, here he's saying, you know, you're living in your own little world. Don't you realize you're the king of Israel? Don't you realize, dads, you're the head of your family? Don't you realize, ministry leaders, you're responsible for your ministry. We must give an account to God. It's not just about your kingdom in your head. Okay. The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord said, sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you, now here's what they really did, pounce on the spoil. They, they took it for themselves. And do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Saul said to Samuel, now look at, does this remind you of talking to your teenager? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil. Oh, the people again. 
sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Yeah. <laughs> he, he reframes the whole thing as though he had obeyed. Samuel's pointing out exactly what he did. I did. Right? So Samuel goes on. Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? So the question is, what does God value more? Your religious rituals that you participate in? I go to church, I take communion, I tithe, I go to Bible study. I, you know. But what about obeying him from your heart? What does God value more? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, than to do religious rituals, and to listen than the fat of rams. You know, the, the person who all week long is immersed in pornography, has a filthy mouth, full of anger, yet pacifies God by going to church, doing communion, doing the rituals. God says, are, who, who do you think you're fooling? You really think you're pleasing me? So then he says this, for rebellion is as the sin of divination. What's, what's going on here? Divination is turning to, for example, a medium or a witch to give you guidance. Divination is turning to powers other than God. Rebellion is turning to yourself other than God. Right? So there's a parallel I mean, people go, oh, divination, who would get involved in that? Well, rebellion, disobedience is the same thing. You've cut God out of the picture. He's not your Lord, right? Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Presumption is, is this. God will bless me because... I'm doing the rituals. It's like the vending machine. I put three quarters in, push bless, and God owes me blessing. That's what idolatry is. You've got an idol, sacrifice to it. Idol owes me a good crop this year. Right? A lot of people's view of God is presumptuous. Put in three quarters of religious ritual, boom, he owes me his blessing. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Not for a one little slip up, but because his actions reveal the tip of the iceberg of an unsaved, rebellious, presumptive heart. Right? So we see rebellion and presumption. Now, last thing. Repentance. False repentance. Saul finally says, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people, man-pleasing, and obeyed their voice 
Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore, as we have a photograph, a picture, an actual satellite photo of that event right there. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Ooh, that really galls Saul. And also the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, let's, let's talk about this regret thing. In verse 11, God regrets that he had made Saul king. In verse 35, the chapter ends with God regretting that he had made Saul king. Verse 29 God is not a man that he has regrets. What do you do with that? Now, first thing you have to do is go, the author is smart enough that he's not contradicting himself. When regret is sandwiched between, when he won't regret is sandwiched between he regretted, he regretted, he is doing something there to catch our attention. Right? Verse 29 is a statement affirming God's perfect wisdom. He always makes the right choice, the perfect choice. This is a statement about his wisdom. Verse 11 and verse 35, God is not looking back and doubting his choice, but he's feeling the pain caused by Saul because of the choice. He's not surprised by Saul's disobedience, but he is feeling the pain of it. Let me give you a a similar example in the New Testament, in John chapter 11. Lazarus is sick. His friend Lazarus is sick and dying. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus. He's, He's in another city that, hurry, he's dying, and Jesus stays where he is and lets Lazarus die. And he, he, he does that so he can raise him from the dead. But when he shows up, he's at the tomb and everybody's weeping. You know what it says? Jesus wept. You know, wait a minute. I thought he made the right choice. He did make. He wouldn't go back on his choice. He wouldn't repent on his choice. But in the middle of it, he's feeling the pain of the choice and, and he's weeping with the people. I believe that's what's going on here with this play on words of the word regret. So then, um, verse 30. Then he said, I have sinned. You all right? uh, He says he sinned. We've got him. We've talked him into the point of repenting. Not so fast. There's true repentance and there's false repentance. How do we know this is false repentance? Well, first of all, it took all the chapter to get to this point. But look at the very next thing that comes out of his mouth. I've sinned, yet, but 
Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. Okay, you got me. You got me. I mean, what can I say? I've sinned. But would you walk with me back so I can bow before God and, and I'll look good? Because, Samuel, you're the, you're the priest. You're the prophet. So would you do that? He's still more concerned with what people think than with his sin before God. If your repentance is based simply on avoiding punishment or avoiding consequences or avoiding looking bad, but it's not based on true sorrow before God, your your repentance is really no different than the three-year-old. No, I didn't do it, Mommy. I didn't do it, Mommy. And you show the evidence, you know. Okay, uh, I did it. Don't spank me. Well, so... That's not true repentance. Now, uh, it says, So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. So Samuel goes back with him. I don't know why. I don't know if he should. I don't know if it was a mistake. I don't know, what, I don't know what's going on here. But next, Samuel makes it very clear what God is thinking. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. This is the king. He's alive. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah. Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. We covered what that means. But imagine... Samuel, the prophet, standing before the people of Israel, covered in the blood and guts of Agag. It screams the message, God's not fooling around. You who are outside of his grace... You who play around in false repentance. You who think surface obedience can pacify God. God's not playing games. And a day of retribution is coming. Unrepentant people take God too lightly. It's the sin of presumption. They're playing games. And passages like this tell us God's not playing games. But those who take God seriously and they see their sin and they see their rebellion and they see that they can honestly say, I have sinned like David. Let's go to another bloody scene. 
a blood-stained cross where God became man and he said, I will take, David, the wrath that you deserve. I will take, people of Valley Brook, the, the wrath that you deserve upon myself. And the sword of God came down on Jesus. And all who trust in Christ, you're in grace. You're in God's favor. Not because of your obedience, but because of his obedience. I want to call us to repentance and trust and belief in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, what a vivid, almost terrifying scene, yet it's in your word. And it reminds us of the gravity of sin and judgment. But Lord, we thank you that at the cross, you took care of judgment for those who would turn to you Lord, whatever is preventing any in this room from truly repenting with taking you lightly, I pray you would remove it and we would all call upon your name for true salvation. Lord, may we be like David, not like Saul. Do your work amongst us and may you be glorified. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.